where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. If one needs a kind of boilerplate definition of economics, like as a field of study, then I say it's the study of human action around the allocation of scarce resources. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here with Michael Thiessen Open Mic. And today I get to speak with David Bonson. David is the founder and managing partner and Chief Investment Officer with the Bonson Group, which is a bi-coastal wealth management firm, managing over $3 billion of capital, of client capital. Uh, David, it's great to have you on with us. Uh, I first got to meet with you just a few weeks ago when we were uh, together at the Center for Cultural Leadership Symposium in California. Uh, it was great to hear your brief lecture there on some current issues on the family and appreciated that. And now we get to follow up. You kind of just mentioned your your new book uh, to us at that time, and, and I downloaded it and have enjoyed reading it. So it's great to have you on. Uh, you really do. I, when when I first saw the title of your book and it said, uh, it, it's, it's talking about 250 different principles, I thought, is he really going to get to 250? Uh, and you did. So Thanks so much for coming on and having a conversation about the book. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I certainly enjoyed meeting you at the CCL event in San Francisco. And, and uh, uh, I think highly of the event and a lot of the conversation topics in front of us, near and dear to both of us. So, David, one of the things I appreciate at the onset of uh, No Free Lunch is where you talk about the definition of economics. And so I'm just going to reread back to you one of your quotes that I, I appreciated. Uh, the definition of economics is a cultivation of creation through human labor for the provision of human needs through relationship. And then later on in that chapter, you expand on relationship with relationships of exchange. Yeah. Now that seems pretty basic to me, but most of us get confused when we hear things like the Kean uh, and the Austrian group, all of these different perspectives on economics. Can you kind of walk my listeners who who are learning about this and particularly trying to wade through all of the competing definitions? Uh, how and why do people come up with competing definitions uh, of this particular topic? Yeah, I think I think you meant the Keynesian, and so yeah, when, sorry, when yes, I did. Yeah, Keynesian, Austrian. There's a lot of the the classical school of economics. Um, I make a distinction between the definition of an economy, which is what I think you just described that I described in the book, and that cultivation of creation that uh, I'm providing a little more holistic set of modifiers around and prepositional phrases through relationships of exchange. 
um, to allow for a colored up definition of what an economy is. Um, if one needs a kind of boilerplate definition of economics, like as a field of study, then I say it's the study of human action around the allocation of scarce resources. And so it's, it, in that case, it's not as colored in. It's pretty simple. And I do believe that most Austrians and indeed most honest um, economists could be comfortable with that definition, although there is a reason on the first part of it that many would not prefer to use it. Um, and what the reason to get, answer your question, why this matters, is that when you start your definition of economics with the study of human action, you have begun a um, need for bigger conversation about the human person. How can we study human action without knowing what the human is to act for? or what the human is, who the human person is. Um, what, what, because the definition of an economy talks about the cultivation of creation, we're presupposing that um, humans are created, which presupposes that humans have a creator. So it invites um, by necessity um, a, a kind of evaluation of other presuppositions that will formulate uh, an, a coherent economic worldview. The reason that the Austrian school has always favored human action as a sort of central understanding of economics and the Keynesian school and other advocates of central planning, I mean, Marxism is a, is a more extreme version, but why they would avoid that is that they are well aware that the vocabulary can become problematic to where they want to go which is going to be less human-focused as a subject of economics and more human-focused as an object of economics. And I think that distinction is incredibly important. I believe that economics is essentially mankind acting out in creation as the protagonist of creation, as the protagonist of economic activity, that God designed mankind with that special role. And I do not believe that humans are there to be objects of uh, obscure, eccentric, esoteric, abstract laws of mathematics and science. That, that the idea that there is these sort of economic formulas that can flow down to us as humans uh, dehumanizes economics, and it really begs for a central planner to handle that process. So even if this seems a little heady, it's important out of the gate to recognize what we're really talking about with economics. We're studying human action around the allocation of scarce resources. If every single thing was at equal levels of abundance, and, and by abundance I mean infinite abundance, then we don't have to worry about how we allocate resources. But because I believe scarcity was part of creation, both pre-fall and obviously post-fall, um, it requires us to understand um, the various elements of the human person, human incentives, human reason, human virtue, morality, ethics that go into this economic life. So would the, would the Keynesians be 
when you say the difference between like number, I, I, I have appreciated in the book when you talk about human dignity so much at the beginning, it, it, it sets the tone for um, the, the, the free will exchange of goods and ideas. And would, would the basic difference be that because I feel like I understand the Austri- Austrian camp so much better than the other one in the sense that does is is one trying to manage the outcomes? Is it as simple as going back to like a Marxist collectivist? That's your end result where there is an, a few who are trying to manage resources with their will imposed on everyone else else because they, they they believe they have a better perspective on things yeah. uh, is that too simplified or can you help it, me understand it, it, that a bit better I, I think i'm being more gracious to keynesianism by what i'm about to say i actually don't think their flaw is in their conclusion i think their flaw is in the premise okay. and so you're right that the their premise will lead to a conclusion of we're going to need some central planning. You know, he wasn't a Marxist. He wasn't looking for totalitarianism, but he's looking for a heavy role of central planning. And yet I would argue it wasn't that conclusion that was flawed. It was the premise, which is that mankind was made and that economic activity is fundamentally about consumption. So once you believe that man is here to consume then it um, goes down a path where I agree with Keynes that central planning is going to be a better way to manipulate um, consumptive activity, where if you start with an entirely different anthropology, an entirely different belief about the human person, that in my case and in my worldview is that mankind was made by a creator in his image, and that the image of our creator is one who is productive, innovative, creative, that mankind was not built to consume, but built to produce. And that consumption follows production. And there's a lot of economic wisdom that comes out of that. It totally changes the chain of events by which you get to things like public policy. And, and so in Kane's defense, I think he gets to a public policy that asks a central planner to use the national balance sheet to kind of manipulate outcomes, because what he's trying to get to to begin with is wrong, which is that you fundamentally need consumption as the be all and end all of economic life. And if you start, and this wasn't Austrians who came up with the idea of production first. It was, first of all, God in Genesis 1. It's then, I think, the entire testimony of Scripture and Christian theology. But really, the um, story of the Christian tradition, and then once you get to more systematized economic history, the classical school. So you're Adam Smith's, David Ricardo's, John Baptiste. Um, these guys, well before there was an Austrian school in the late 19th and early 20th century, in the late 18th century, there was a focus on production. And, and in, a, in a more um, pre-scientific sense, I think Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas were on board with this as well. Um, but it developed more over time. So production-first economics versus consumption-first economics 
is the key divide between a sort of laissez-faire market economy advocacy like I have, free enterprise versus central planning and, and Keynesianism. Um, and, and why that divide exists is for me theological. Our federal government's response to economic difficulties is to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything, essentially stealing from your hard-earned pay. What you need is to take control of your own resources and to be responsible for your own money, which is your responsibility. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country, you should seriously consider connecting with my friends over at Bull Bitcoin and buying at least some Bitcoin today. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC and have all of your questions answered. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. Thanks everyone for supporting them. That's really helpful when you started off talking about scarcity. Of course, that's we see that reflected where Adam is pre-fall encouraged to work and cultivate. So he, he he's producing right there in the garden as a form of, of uh, obeying the Lord and, and, and living a normal pre-fall life. So I, I appreciate that thought. One of the things you get to a little bit later on in the book is, um, is, is using the coercive state uh, to alter prices. And, and, and you obviously oppose that. Um, I, you, you, you say prices are pivotally important signals in a free economy. So the last thing that we would want to do is to coerce, uh, to use the course of native of the state of the state to alter prices. Uh, I think, can, can you share with our listeners an example of price fixing or altering prices is this a really prevalent issue within North America? Is is this is this an is this a normal behavior right now that, uh, you know, as someone who's an investor, you're 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 having to deal with day in and day out? You summarize that it leads to misinformation to investors. So I assume that this is a really important topic for you. Well, there there's a few examples that every single person deals with every single day that are most prevalent. And there are some that are not controversial for many people in the sense of they've accepted that it's a good thing. And so um, let's distinguish between price fixing and price manipulation. I think those are differences of degree, not of kind. And so they are both in kind in that they are distortive, that they distort a, a natural discovery process of prices and alter the price mechanism, which therefore alters the signals that are used in economic calculation. Well, the most obvious example is the price manipulation of the cost of capital, which is a, a manipulation of the price of time. And I refer to the interest rate. Whether you're talking about Canada, the US, or Mexico, every North American country 
has a central bank that is no longer just a lender of last resort, but is affecting the prevalent interest rate that is the reference for many other interest rates, such as mortgages, car payments, credit cards, all sorts of borrowing, business borrowing that dictate um, how banks are going to transact, whether it's with households or businesses. So price fixing the, co the price of money is the most obvious and systemic price manipulation. But the other that has become totally socially acceptable and is almost fringe for people like me to be against it is price fixing around wages. Um, the notion of a minimum wage, which almost universally sounds like a great idea. There are low paid people, low skilled in need of better means of support. And the idea of the government raising a floor to provide them a better livable wage in theory, sure seems prima facie to be very acceptable to people. But my argument is that if that is the case, then price fixing must not be the bad thing that we said it was. Um, and of course, I would argue that a minimum wage is an impossibility unless you're going to have forced hiring because the minimum wage is always zero. And the government can set a minimum wage at 12, 15, or 100, but they can't make you hire someone. And so the market clearing number is always what an employer and an employee agree. And if they would have agreed at 10, but the state says it has to be 15, and so they don't agree, well, then guess what? They agree at zero. So it becomes an attempted price manipulation that disintermediates everybody in between the clearing level of zero and the state-imposed minimum of 15, which ends up not being a market minimum if someone doesn't get hired, right? So rent controls, um, the Nixon administration in the 70s famously tried various price controls around certain commodities. There's any number of things that the state does and, and with um, the price of money, with interest rates and minimum wage laws, they've actually become quite accepted. Other forms of price fixing and price manipulation are still more controversial. Uh, I would argue in North America, it's systemic that um, healthcare is subject to all sorts of price distortions. You, you um, make it almost impossible for a provider of a service and a consumer of a service to agree on a price when there is so much regulatory apparatus and floors and ceilings that are imposed by a disinterested third party, that's pretty much systemic in our health services industry as well. Okay, so this is a topic that um, I wanted I wanted to dive in in with you, um, particularly because, of course, in Canada, you know that. That is, a, I think, a, an even larger issue because the state is the healthcare provider. So you have in Canada, in essence, you have a state monopoly on a service, and then you have the coercive capabilities of the state to enforce a favorable climate for itself. Um, 
And I don't think Canadians think enough about this, just that they think, oh, you know, healthcare is free. And, and they don't realize that just their, their, method, their method of payment is coming through taxation. And by the way, there's no competition to, to hold the, the, the monopoly accountable. And so when, when you talk about that um, and the manipulation of prices and not being able to, to negotiate, um, I wanted you just to maybe give a comment to that. But then also I wanted to ask you, I think the, I think the, I think the soft socialism that's so popular would say back to you, David, well, it's either the government monopoly or we just, you know, wealthy people get wealthier. They turn into an oligarchy of sorts. And then there's a capitalistic um, monopoly. Can you kind of walk us through that? And is there any, is there any place for regulation in an idea where you're either dealing with a state monopoly or a capitalistic monopoly? Um, well, th there's a really big problem with the question is that it, uh, the phraseology capitalistic monopoly is a contradiction in terms. If what one means is that a company can get too big and powerful in a free market and can ha damage the consumer then we let's unpack exactly what that means. Uh, the history of antitrust in the U.S., where I've studied it a great deal, suggested that the only monopolies that were formed were when big telecom in the early 19th century, uh, 20th century, or, or oil or railroad or some of these old school um, uh, oligarchy type situations that people refer to were in partnership with the government. It wasn't a capitalistic monopoly. It was that they grew to a point of size and then used the arm of the state to squash competition and to eliminate competition, to remove it. Um, and, and I don't believe a monopoly is the same thing as a big successful company. I think a monopoly is a big successful company that then partners with the state to keep away other competitive forces. So when we talk right now about certain companies that are big and powerful, I don't know, I believe you have a prima facie duty to establish where a consumer is being harmed first. And I look at some of the gigantic um, e-commerce retailers that often get called monopolies. They have such powerful brand names and are so big and successful but they might represent 5% of all retail sales. That's not generally considered a monopoly. If you don't, if 95% of other things in your space are going on elsewhere. And there is this constant invitation of other competition coming in to grab market share, sometimes doing so successfully and putting downward pressure on prices. So where do you see, um, monopolies, but from governmental intervention, either exclusive where they dominate, let's say, public education, for example, or the post office or things like that, where there is quite literally not price competition, service competition, reputational competition, or what, what you're referring to as capitalistic monopolies that are really quasi-crony 
organizations where one climbs a ladder from business acumen and then uses their position to kick over the ladder by now asking the government to represent to, to create a barrier to entry and to invite regulation, knowing that when you're at this level, regulation is a subsidy because it hurts the smaller player. And for you, as a percentage of revenues, it's very small, but for a new upstart, it's very large. And so accountants and lawyers and lobbyists become a cost of doing business. So therefore, my side of this position requires an unending vigilance to oppose cronyism. My advocacy for markets and, and for some of these other terms is not an advocacy for capitalistic monopolies. It's an opposition to what is better called cronyist monopolies. But in an environment that is a free and virtuous society where the state is not picking winners and losers, by definition, we believe that the regulative force in the market is uh, the competition that comes from the profit motive. Um, that one can be successful with a chosen line of business, but must always be seeking more innovation, more price competition, other things that serve the customer. Because if company A is making money with it, there's a company B out there that could also be making money with it. We decide that these principles that have worked in every sphere and in every industry sit forever somehow don't apply to healthcare. It's uh, mystifying. And yet I think the burden of proof is on those who would say the price competition doesn't work in healthcare. The burden is not on those who suggest that more market reforms would generate a better result for the delivery of health services. And, and I appreciate you getting at the nature of even of the error of my question in the sense that the, the question that's at least in Canada, it's just time and time again, the villainization of the, the private corporation and the sanctify the, 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 the sanctification or the, uh, the, the, the sainthood of, of the government. And so people are truly led to believe I think in many respects that, that you have an either or of corruption. And I appreciate your response because I, I think and David, feel free just to repeat yourself for my first listener, my, my first listen here, but you're, you're still saying the regulation does not come in any way, uh, at least around this conversation with any government intervention, because that's actually what has been the problem. It is the regulation of the, of the economic pressure itself. Like it, it would it would it be correct to say that the market's self-regulating? Well, it, it's certainly correct to say that markets are self-regulating to a point, but that is not to be interpreted as a sort of radical libertarian um, application. I, I do I do believe that there are um, various regulatory necessities in even a free society. But the title of my book that you're bringing up is meant to address this, that let's decide what regulations we think are needed in certain aspects of a free society and in the type of economy that we want to have. 
and let's recognize that there are trade-offs. That's what there's no free lunch means. So we may say there needs to be a certain regulatory thing, let's say um, around uh, uh, a position of public safety. Um, I talked to high school students um, about uh, buildings being constructed that have requirements for to to um, accommodate handicap, and and um, we all agree that it seems like a really wonderful thing to do to build buildings with elevators that will accompany those that are uh, in a wheelchair. And I say, do we want the state to regulate and mandate it? And um, most will say yes. And I'll say, see, I don't have a problem with it either, but I have a problem with it if we don't recognize that, okay, there's going to be a little extra cost for the builder now, and there's going to be a certain trade-off and that may be what we as a society want, to be able to accommodate those who have a disability and so forth. The problem where we get into bad economics is when we pretend that regulation doesn't have a trade-off, and then when we pretend that there's no limiting principle, that um, we say, okay, we do want builders to have to provide um, uh, handicap access. That, that makes sense to us to be the type of society we wanna be. But then now let's also go to step two, three, four, five that might be really quite um, uh, restrictive and problematic and whatnot. I just believe that our approach to regulation needs to be rooted in these first principles, that there is a trade-off, there's no free lunch, and that there has to be a limiting principle. And I would assume that based upon your biblical worldview that that, that leads us back to a discussion of law and criminality that that regulatory bodies essentially or regulation of any sort essentially has to look back to the rule of law as that limiting principle like whereby where the state is and you know this is where we've seen a lot of tension where the regulatory bodies just seem to be growing exponentially and their powers and we're 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 not looking for a lawless society, but we are looking back to a you know a lawful limitation of their regulations, which we would in the in the biblical world look look back to scripture on principles. Now, how how would you talk about that, um, or how do you talk about this limiting principle? That that's how I would talk about it. How would you talk about it? Well, I think that um, I'm starting at a higher level without the granularity of each individual regulation. I'm starting with the basic principle that when we refer to um, a market economy and the regulation that we do and do not want to have, that we are talking about matters of liberty and that those who have attempted to advocate for a free society and, and let's call it the liberty camp as if virtue is this second category, and we're trying to get this kind of equilibrium with we're going to have 50 parts of virtue and 50 parts of liberty to make the perfect meatloaf, as opposed to um, the belief that we are in need of a full-orbed commitment to liberty and a full-orbed commitment to virtue as one part, as one synthesized harmony to um, allow for a free and virtuous society because I believe that the lack of one undermines the sustainability of the other. And so, it, frankly, 
it would be very difficult to have an argument about what type of uh, ADA, which is, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, what type of handicapped um, regulations we want to have in a number of aspects of our, our civic life. It would be very hard to have when a society is either not committed to liberty, the basic notions of a certain amount of market freedom, and yet also to virtue, where we do want to accommodate um, those that, that are in need of greater compassion, where a society that holds liberty and virtue in the right tension together um, as one harmony um, is going to have very little trouble coming up with the right regulatory apparatus around uh, elevators in a building and so forth. So one of the chapters that you um, that you talk about is creative dis destruction. I believe is uh, is one of the, the the chapters, and I think it's such an important theme. So let me frame this, and then I I, I want you to you know just dig into it. One of the things that we that you talk about is that you know America is more tolerant of failure. Uh, which is why capitalism has thrived. Uh, you go on to say that cultures that do not tolerate shame deprive themselves of opportunity. And those are two very profound statements that when you said it in the book, and I'm listening and reading at the same time, I immediately thought of how often I have sat around Christian, uh, either school board meetings, church elders meetings, um, with uh, you know broader pastors conferences, uh, or and just the average decision making as a pastor that I've walked through with with Christian couples, where failure seems to be um, associated deeply and equated with sin and shame, and uh, it you, you know you go on to say that this creates hesitancy and overthinking and over spiritualization and. I thought that was a, a profound truth that I wanted to to pause on because I think so many Christians are held back from being productive economically because of this very statement that that failure is always associated with sin and shame. So you touch on it and you move quick in this book. Dig into that thought. Yeah, I, I, it's one of the most important things I could say. I would be, I actually uh, feel much more strongly about this than even that. I would believe that if there is any language in scripture about it, it is the polar opposite. It's not merely that risk-taking and failure is not sinful. It's that not taking risks is sinful. That it actually goes the other way. We didn't. We didn't get this by instead by going from zero to negative ten. We got it because we're at negative ten and we're supposed to be at positive ten. And that risk taking is a part of human action, and risk taking is a part of allocation of scarce resources. But fundamentally, it's a part of cre creation, innovation, and production which is what we were made to do out of the garden and that the advancement of civilization has come from trial and error. And in a prehistoric sense, we can think of things that came about as a result of trial and error. And there was error before we got there. But even in a more modern sense, we know 
that there is an awful lot of enterprise that doesn't succeed. And that's because of subjective value. People can misread a consumer, misread appetite in a market. They can fail to execute. There can be things that, that happen that then they do what? What's the biblical message? They learn from it. They grow, they reapply, they regroup. Proverbs talks about this all the time. It doesn't say already know everything and then go do some cool things. It says go to the anto sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It's seek, seeking a multitude of counselors. There is, and, and of course, we know very famously from so many of Jesus' parables, the uh, mandate for risk-taking that bearing money in the backyard was, in fact, that which incurred the greatest amount of wrath. And so the active deployment of capital, and by capital, I mean time, resources, and treasure, um, the active deployment of capital involves risk. And I believe on a basic human level, and of course, when I say human, I mean anthropologically, that this is a byproduct of how God made us, how God designed humanity. I say that risk-taking is the great moral act of our economic living. And you say, well, how is it a great moral thing when a family goes, invests money, and then the business fails and the dad is out of a job or, or the mom's out, whatever the case may be. And I say, I'm sorry, what is immoral about that? What I see is someone being enterprising, um, that there is economic activity. Some of it does not end up paying off. There are lessons learned that are then parlayed into uh, a new venture, new opportunity. There is price discovery that comes out of it. Oh, it turns out the consumer will not pay this for a product and so forth. It's so hard, you know, to simplistically summarize because we could go into different examples where nobody would disagree. Everyone would immediately see the great utility that comes sometimes from failure. But what is really upsetting to me morally and theologically is that we all know this is true with every other category but economics. Everybody believes that when you um, get something wrong when you're studying for a quiz, it helps you to get it right when you take a test. You know, that there's this process of, of growth and improvement. Um, even morally, we actually have a theological term called sanctification. The notion in our marriages and in our child rearing that we're trying to grow. Parents try different forms of communication with certain kids and some things don't work and other things do. This isn't controversial, but then it becomes controversial in areas of entrepreneurialism. I, th I find that offensive. I, I think it's a very, very powerful point because I can think of so many examples um, where and I think it comes down to that success or failure in business um, is interacting with these creational law laws. And like you said, your price discovery and, and work and learning and all of these different things, which if it is done within the moral ethic still does not guarantee success as you, as you've mentioned, but so many people seem like I, I can think of husband and wife after a situation where A, B, C, D, here are the thoughts. This is what I'm hoping to do. Here's my research. This is the plan. Here's the work pattern. Uh, Going to go do it. And there is this paralyzation of, you know, let's pray about it. Now, I'm not saying don't 
pray about things, but it it seems this over-spiritualization when it comes to economics is a real problem. And then the flip side of it, like you said, so many families where, you know, I can think of how often, you know, boards at churches are chosen based upon maybe successful businessmen, not the nine out there who did a lot of the same stuff and still had some failures. It just seems to be such a pervasive issue within the church. I'm so glad you touched upon it and unpacked it in the book. Well, thank you. And I and I think that it's important to not only with some of these theological and cultural connotations we're referring to, um, but I do believe that if one takes seriously the notion of economic growth as a mandate out of creation, and by the way, in the current reality of um, our society, that the, the cultural divides over income inequality and wealth inequality are really frustrations with stagnant economic growth, that throughout history, most people's um, angst is intensified in periods of not where rich are getting richer, but when poor are not getting richer, um, that economic growth is an incredibly important component of what we need to be aspiring for. And what is economic growth? It's the creation, production of new goods and services to meet the needs of humanity there will be creative destruction along the way and there will be improvement that comes from that. And when we understand this, not only does it have application and utility in other spheres of our life as you're talking about, but it gives us a much clearer focus on what economic growth will look like. A failure to understand this would have meant the industrial revolution never happened. The digital revolution never happened it would have essentially um, allowed for a certain Luddite vision of society that is totally outside the creation mandate for how we can go about better meeting the needs of humanity, providing the goods and services that lead to higher quality of life, um, the, the things that are all part of, I think, our Genesis commandment. So one of the sentences that I took a note on in this section was resilience, capability, and productivity are products of adversity. And that was just such a helpful way to summarize this. I kind of want to, I kind of want to, if I'm, if I may ask the obvious question that always comes up when we're talking about economics and then and you, you address covetous covetiveness in the book. And the the natural response to all of this, and when I say the natural response, I mean the sinful response of covetousness where people want wealth distributed to them that they didn't earn is, well, doesn't a capitalistic market lead to greed? And I know that you address this in the book. Can you, can you make some comments on that? Um, you talk about the sum zero fallacy that that those who are getting richer are not actually opposed to to anyone. They're 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 producing, and it's a fallacy to to think that they are. Can you just talk about that element and and how often you're hearing that come up? I know it's a just a characterization of you know the 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 villainization of of the of the entrepreneur, but I'd like you to deal with it if you could. 
Well, I, I think that a, a line I heard recently, it was actually from Warren Buffett's sort of less famous right-hand man, um, uh, Charlie Munger, recently said that greed is not what makes the, this whole thing go. It, um, covetousness is. I think he, he used the word envy. That um, at root uh, uh, in mankind's sinful nature, uh, which, of course, uh, necessitated an actual commandment, the grand finale of the Ten Commandments itself, was that warning against coveting something that one that someone else has. Um, that envy that comes with, from wanting something because someone else has it. And the, the, it's the most logical explanation for why uh, people of greater and greater prosperity and greater and greater quality of life are more and more unhappy because their absolute standard of living is not the benchmark they're using, but is the standard of living they have compared to their neighbor. Uh, this is textbook covetousness. It is as old as Sinai, and it is equally destructive to one's soul. The notion that markets create greed is a sentence that is incoherent if one knows what markets are. Markets are two people acting. A market just is. Uh, you get two people together, and one of them needs a blanket, one of them needs bananas, one of them uh, is wondering how to get directions to a store, and one of them wants to help and or not help. There's just a social cooperation. Uh, there could be a transaction at play. There could not be. But a market is this natural human interaction. And uh, human interaction, uh, so back to this study of human action, um, requires us to understand certain things about human nature. Mankind was built with um, reason, with a certain rationality. Mankind responds to incentives. So the idea that um, markets automatically facilitate greed is akin to saying that marriage automatically facilitates lust. It's absurd. Now, are there people that can objectify their spouse in that context, of course. And are there people that can, in the course of market interaction, have um, callous disregard for neighbor in market transactions, sinful behavior? Of course. The question is, what is the economic system that doesn't have that? Where does the sinful aspect of human nature go away? And what we're told by those who are concerned of markets leading to runaway greed is that there's some other system where that's not a risk. My view is that on this side of glory, we cannot escape that there will be greed and avarice and abuse, but that markets far more constrain it than statism, where the incentive is immediately to accumulate power. So why would I believe that the statist is less subject to greed than the entrepreneur. Isn't our time better spent defending entrepreneurship, but fully advocating moral formation and the synthesis of liberty and virtue in the way we go about creating an entrepreneurial, pro-growth, market-friendly uh, society? What would make us believe that we can solve for the greed problem by appointing certain enlightened, disinterested third parties of the czar of our economic planning. Well, we tried that over and over again in the 20th century. 
and the greatest bloodshed in human history comes about from this utopian fallacy. So I have no need as a market advocate to deny that greed exists because I believe in the theology of original sin and that um, on this side of glory, there will always be those things. But my point is to throw the baby out with the bathwater that because there will be greed, we shouldn't have markets. Because there will be um, other issues, we shouldn't have marriage or, or whatever the institution and forum and venue may be um, is incoherent. And unfortunately, it goes beyond incoherence here. It leads to solutions to remedies that are far worse than the disease. Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40-year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard-earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink Investment Partners are so essential because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high-quality businesses anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing, and they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the world economics forms dis definition of ESG. So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. I appreciate that thought. And I'm thinking while you were talking, I'm also just thinking about you, you when you were talking about state control, you know, people often forget that greed so easily, um, manifest itself, uh, uh, entangles, uh, the, the very state bureaucrat elitist. So, so you can have a, a, you can have a great insightful economist who decides to be greedy. And if they have state power, it, it's the same temptation, but with so much more force. And I, I like how you describe how the, the market clarifying that actually, that's one of the things I really appreciated about the book is so often how you come back to that human relationship and and the 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 free exchange the the um the social nature of it because you're right you know if i walk into a store and it's like batteries are $10,000 and i and i say why are your batteries $10,000 he's like cuz i want to make a lot of money uh, i okay great I, I walk out of the store and i go to a store where batteries are at a price that i'm willing to pay it it solves itself so often especially when you know we're interacting with individuals socially um in our in our communities you get to know these people and then they look at you and say well stop haggling the price of my batteries like everybody's got the same price for batteries in town I, i'm just five cents if you want to buy them here buy them here and because of that relationship they either call you in or or um force you out um one of the things that I, i'd like to address just for the last little portion of this is you make a statement in the book that I think I understand, but I, 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 I need you to flesh out a little further. And the statement in the book, uh, it, it comes around the idea of uh, markets break down barriers of groups, naturally break down barriers mm. of groups. Yeah. And I see the wisdom in that. 
But then immediately when I'm reading the book, I think of, I think of how, like, let's say the market doesn't break down barriers where someone comes in and says, I want you to make a cake for my, uh, my gay wedding. And you say, I don't, I don't want to make a cake. And now there's, there's conflict there. I think you're going to come back to your answer of promoting virtue and, and, uh, and, and promoting, um, both freedom, uh, and responsibility. Can you unpack that a little bit as far as, is that up to the free market to totally regulate? How, how do we interact with this new world where, where people are trying to force you to produce something for someone that you don't want to produce? Well, I think that um, th there's a certain legal dimension to the question, but let's use the exact example you used, um, which is should someone be compelled to make a cake uh, for that wedding? I believe as a matter of religious liberty and freedom of conscience that the answer is no. And so asking the market to fix that is a little bit of a category error. Um, because I think that particularly in the United States that has a First Amendment, there is already a freedom of religion that answers that question. Now, some have tried to then move that to a more controversial issue like the Civil Rights Act. Could they then say, I don't want to serve uh, uh, African-American, for example? And I uh, do not believe that. And they say, well, what's the difference? And I think that the society is more than able to have um, standards by which all, because we say in our founding documents um, that all are created equal and have a certain dignity, that the notion of someone having a business in the town square, there are public roads, public infrastructure that is all involved in the formation of the business, and then to deny someone um, uh, patronage not for religious conscience, but for this sort of hateful racism or whatnot, um, is a category distinction. Whereas in the other issue, I, by the way, would not have a problem with someone saying, I do feel religiously comfortable making a cake for the gay wedding, even though I'm opposed to the wedding. I, I think that that freedom of conscience should be the legal and economic a governor and people can have different opinions that they think a Christian should or shouldn't do it, but I don't think people should disagree that um, one choosing not to do it is within their religious liberty, and that there is a categorical distinction uh, there between other aspects of refusing service when we have uh, made certain commitments together as a society. So back to your your question though about. Um, Markets forcing people to do thing, do things is more or less a contradiction in terms. Um, no one is forcing someone to open uh, a restaurant, and and no one, um, you know, that th you can set prices where you want. You you have all kinds of freedom in how you go about formulating the business. But the idea that have become more culturally toxic in recent times where you're getting into very legitimate matters of conscience and, and liberty. I think of the um, hospitals that are being forced to provide 
uh, uh, various abortion services or health insurance companies told they must cover uh, uh, various products. Um, this is not the marketplace requiring it. The marketplace is a very great solution. Company A doesn't want to provide it. Company B does. Company B is now attractive to the more attractive than company A to the people who want it. And company A is more attractive to the people who don't. Very simple. So they're each kind of uh, fighting for their own customers and appealing in their own way through their own incentives and system of risk and reward. And markets would price that through and we would develop great social cooperation out of it, no problem. What disrupts social cooperation? The state intervention. That's I, and it. So I, I appreciate that. And I think the nature of my question comes from the idea that social cooperation seems so obvious when we have a shared worldview, a shared, a, a, a shared constitution that everyone agrees upon. And as, as we're kind of moving to, a, you know, to the full secularization of culture, to the very questions of the constitution being asked, it seems that we're going to have more volatility in the market or in the, in, in social agreement. And I, you know, again, maybe as a Canadian, I'm just always asking, how can the state help us out? But I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm, which by the way, I, which by the way, I despise. Like I, 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 I don't love yeah. it, but it's just so natural. But I, when, when you made that statement, I thought, well, that makes sense when everybody agrees on the social rules. And now it seems like we're we're getting into a, a perverse, you know, a multiverse. You know, we, we've kind of joined with the Marvel universe, and 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 people are arguing for such a drastic difference of um, perspectives. So, so do you think that God's creational norms are just going to win out in the end on that one, and we're going to the markets will continue to regulate, or or is there? Do we do we as a church invest in that discipleship and evangelism? Um, well, there you go. So that so you've answered the question because what what we've done is ask um, somebody to write a uh, check that can't be cashed. Markets cannot impose virtue, and markets, in the nature of just being uh, this open forum for liberty and cooperation, um, do not come with uh, absolution from sin. They do not come with freedom, uh, excuse me, with, with um, uh, a presumed morality. The idea that there are uh, matters of uh, morality, ethics, character, responsibility, virtue, values that we want to see accompanied into a market economy, we, uh, rather than ask markets on their own uh, to solve for those problems seems to me to be a very wasteful endeavor and alleviates the responsibility from institutions of family and church that are pre-political entities that were assigned that task of moral formation and character development and culture building to begin with. And so I think that the sphere sovereignty that the great Abraham Kuyper talks about is very important here. 
the marketplace cannot be the place at which that for virtue is formed. Um, I do believe that you can get a, a positive feedback loop that when you have a general underpinning of character, that it can uh, facilitate even greater social cooperation because of the alignment of incentives that markets represent. But no, fundamentally, if you were to drop a market economy into a period of total, uh, into a society of complete chaos and lawlessness and, and um, a complete lack of any semblance of moral living, uh, then the notion that markets would protect us from murder and theft and immorality is ridiculous. So that's why we must not abandon the um, uh, mandate at hand of synthesizing a liberty and virtue together and must never cease to recognize that the forfeiture of one mean, means the losing of the other, that this is not an either or, it is only a both and. And so fundamentally, the things people are worried about happening in the culture and the deterioration of moral values, I share that concern. I only say in my defense of markets and my defense of liberty that we do not accelerate the restoration of virtue by abandoning liberty. We assure the deceleration of virtue by abandoning liberty. And that's where my uh, desire to uh, bring harmony to the, these two things is prevalent in, in my work and my advocacy. I really appreciate the time. And, and you can hear in my questions, just as a, as a layman in this world, just how, how much, you know, um, we slant towards regulation. I, I actually feel kind of sheepish in, 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 in some of the ways that I've phrased things going, man, I, we really all, we really continually look for outside imposition rather than uh, a grassroots investment in influence and virtue and, and social agreement. So I, I appreciate you continuing on that theme. So everybody, thanks for listening. Share this video. Uh, David, thank you for being on. We really appreciate it. Godspeed and uh, make sure you go and you go to libertycoalitioncanada.com and look up all of our other shows. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.